0: This evening is the second part of a two-part series of talks and there are a number of you here this evening that weren't here last week and really the talks are very related to one another. So I have made copies of the talks and so they are here available for those that weren't here last week to to borrow. Actually both of them are out already, Rupert's got one and Steve's got one, but they're going to be in circulation. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to briefly go over last week's talk so that there is a continuity for those of you that weren't here and also to kind of bring us back to the space that we were in last week. The subject of the talk is anger, self-hatred and the power of love. If our meditation is to be wholehearted, and true it must call forth in the natural unfolding of the practice the entire range of what it means to be born human in the process we must come to slowly open to the truth of who we are we open to the beauty and wonder of all that is within us our capacity to love our capacity to care to nurture, to understand. We open to places of joy, calm, silence, emptiness. We also open to our shadow side, to our darker side, our capacity to rage and to hate, to fear, to clutch, to hold on. And we open also to the forces of guilt and attachment, confusion, doubt, chaos, all of these within ourselves too. And having anger arise in the mind is also just a part of what it means to be born human. It's a part of what Zorba, the Greek, called the whole catastrophe. And yet the truth is that we live in a world where anger is regarded as largely, highly unacceptable. And the extent to which we ourselves consider anger to be unacceptable and inappropriate in ourselves is the extent to which it remains unexplored within us. And as a direct expression of our commitment to harmlessness in our lives, as a direct expression of our willingness to look inward and be present to our lives, we must also take responsibility for our anger and for our rage. And what this means is a face-to-face encounter with this very difficult emotion, an acknowledgement of its existence, learning to respond to the anger and not react to it, coming into relationship with the anger, not being governed by it or being a victim of it, but relating to it with balance and with care. Anger is usually dealt with in two ways both regarded as unskillful in the Buddhist tradition. The first is by the suppression of the anger and the second is by venting or the emoting of the anger. Both of these are forms of attachment. The suppression is a clinging, a holding on, a contraction around the anger. And the venting of anger is an aversion to it, a spitting out of the anger. Both of these rigidify the underlying patterns that precipitated the anger in the first place. And both of these therefore condition further suffering and are not regarded as being in the direction of freedom and peace. And we looked a little more carefully at each of these ways in which anger is customarily dealt with in the world. And let's just briefly look at these. The suppression of anger. As I mentioned, our society encourages this largely. And also many people are fearful of their anger. They perhaps sense its presence and are petrified of the force that they suspect it has. They feel it will spill out of control, poisoning their relationships and hurting them. And so we become Pollyannas, sporting sweet smiles. We become the nice lady and the nice man, whereas often inside we we could be seething with rage and discontent. Sometimes our anger can be buried so deep that it feels as though it's under a rock. And this can be very painful. It can certainly cause psychological problems like depression. On the other hand, it is said that suppressed anger is also unhealthy for the body. So this is all the first way that we looked at. The other way of venting the anger is also regarded as unskillful. What is clear is that the old anger-in, anger-out hypothesis that says that letting it all hang out so as to protect us from having it in is just not true. There are no reservoirs of anger within ourselves that have to be tapped, that have to be drained or emptied. In the meditation, we see very clearly that all that arises, passes away. And what does arise, arises because of conditions because of causes. Nothing is permanent, and this includes anger. Is it working, Cheryl? Great. We have terrible tape recorder karma, so that's that's why we're giving attention. Sometimes, if this anger is very suppressed, one can use Uh, skillful therapeutic tools to lift it to the surface but this really requires a lot of skill and care on the part of the therapist so that the process of lifting this repressed energy this repressed anger is not one that creates a lot of identification with the anger but one that can lift it and allow it to move through disidentified so that it doesn't become another prison, so that it doesn't become my anger, me being an angry person. All, all expressions of the venting of the anger, the catharting of the anger. So how is it that we can get to the true nature of anger in ways that are skillful, For the third way is the way of meditation and awareness, not suppressing (coughs) and not venting the anger. And the question or challenge in dealing with anger in this way is how to allow the anger not to be suppressed, not to be vented, but to have it come fully and wholeheartedly into the mind and into awareness so that it can be met, investigated and seen as empty and seen as changing. This third way requires that we come right up to the anger face to face, really very close. It means that we need to look directly at the anger feeling it in our body. Where do we feel it? In our face? in our chest, perhaps, in the gut, or in the bowel, perhaps, in the back, in the throat. It's different for each of us, coming to know the anger. We also need to open to how it is we experience the anger in the mind. How is the mind when anger is there? Is it tight, rigid, rough, stiff, contracted? spoke much about this in the talk. And in this investigation, in this opening to the anger, in the practice that we do here again and again, we come to see different characteristics. The first thing we see is that anger is unpleasant. If we're engulfed with the anger, we can really burn up. It's a real hell realm. And if it's fueled by blaming, it's kind of like a forest fire that just rages on, and on, and on. We see also very clearly that anger arises because of causes. Not because we tapped into the reservoir, but it arises because of causes. If we get what we don't want, anger arises. If we don't get what we do want, anger arises. It arises for a myriad of reasons, in relationship to pride, suspicion, impatience. If we careless with relationships, that is the cause of the anger, it arises. Seeing the anger arising again and again because of causes completely contradicts the idea that there is something within us That needs to be got out. Hi. We see also that it's impermanent. That even though in the midst, in the middle of the anger, It can seem as though it's interminable. It passes away too. And that's very free. To see it come, to see it go. So we see it's unpleasant. We see it arises because of causes. We see that it's impermanent. We see also that thoughts play an integral part in opening to anger. We see that our thoughts can condition anger, we can think of something, anger arises. Or we can see that if there is anger, it can condition thoughts. Perhaps you've noticed, the mind can spin out again and again. It's so amazing, like on retreat, you can be thinking and you can imagine a situation. And then you can start getting angry about it, you know. And then about five minutes down the road, you realize that it's totally a fabrication of your mind, you know. Who's hurting? Thoughts. We see also that it's a very powerful energy. In the Tibetan tradition, there's a whole way in which the power of anger is transmuted into the sword of wisdom. That can enable us to cut through delusion. It's like mustering, garnering the energy of anger and turning it around in a fierce way. It can give us all the strength to say no to the way that we're defined by others and yes to the dictates of our own hearts. Very mobilizing energy. And then we spoke about loving kindness. There's a very famous verse in the Buddhist scriptures that says that anger ceases with love. Anger never ceases with hatred. This is the law. And I spoke a bit about that. This evening I'm going to be speaking a lot more about the force of love in dealing with anger. And then the last thing that we spoke of was patience. Using anger To cultivate patience. Patience is the opposite of anger. It's like if there's a situation, instead of getting angry and frustrated, one can use it to cultivate patience. That's the real contradiction of the anger that might have been there. Patience helps us not think, this anger should never have arisen in the first place, or I wish it would go away by now, it should have gone. These are thoughts of impatience, rather cultivating a long, enduring mind with the patience. And I ended last week with this poem by Adrian Rich, and I'll just excerpt it this time, and then I'll move straight into the rest of the talk. <clears throat> she says, "I recognise the stand of pines, violet black, rarely green in the old postcard." But really I've nothing but myself to go by. Nothing stands in the realm of pure necessity except what my hands can hold. Nothing but myself. Myselves. After so long, this answer. Anger and tenderness. Myselves. And now I can believe they breathe in me as angels, not polarities. Anger and tenderness, the spider's genius to spin and weave in the same action from her own body, anywhere, even from a broken web. So sometimes when working with anger, we back off if it feels that the anger is too overwhelming. We remove ourselves from situations of anger if they feel out of control and the anger is random and freewheeling. This is using our discriminating wisdom in difficult situations so that we might return later to the situation renewed, with balance, and with energy. The walking meditation is another very helpful way of working with anger. Very often on retreat, when the anger rises strongly, people turn to the walking meditation as a refuge, as a respite. It's a real skillful means of taking one's mind off the thoughts, off the energy of anger, and grounding oneself in the sensations of the body. It's a real dynamic way of using the walking meditation. It can create space in the mind, and one can come back to the anger. This is part of making the anger workable. You may want to experiment with it. If anger arises in the mind and it's very overwhelming, just be aware of the body grounding oneself. A further way of working with anger, and this is a more traditional way, is to use the power of reflection. This is something that is not often spoken about in the teachings. But the Buddha suggested using reflections often in his discourses. We may not be inclined to accept these reflections or believe them on face value, but I feel they're worth exploring. It's said in the scriptures that directed anger destroys the roots of virtue collected over lifetimes. Directed anger negates the effect of positive actions in the present and prevents us from attaining our spiritual goals and aspirations. Directed anger causes us to lose peace of mind and exposes us to the danger of retaliation. Causes people to avoid us. And it's also said that harsh harsh speech and angry speech is the cause of lack of beauty. All reasons just to pause, perhaps, and reflect. But in the end, what is unquestionably the most important factor and friend in opening and working with anger is mindfulness. And together with loving-kindness and compassion we can transform the prison and power of anger into an opportunity for deep freedom and understanding. Over time and with patience Anger becomes a part of the workable repertoire of our lives. We receive anger in a whole new way, rather than with fear and aversion. If it arises, it just becomes, oh, anger, just like, oh, joy, oh, fear. All old friends, really, received with loving acceptance. Anger does no longer shut us out of our hearts. Rather, it becomes a reminder to unleash mercy and compassion and kindness in response. Anger is a reminder to self-love rather than the opposite. We see so clearly that the capacity of our hearts and minds is much faster Than the greatest rage that might pass through and we no longer live in fear of the anger. Anger becomes a full part of the beauty of who we are and our flower has opened that much further. With the commitment to take responsibility for our anger we really wage peace within ourselves and so too in the world. We cannot afford to allow our rage and anger to overflow into a world already overwhelmed and out of control with all its conflict, violence, and hatred. So as we open deeply to the anger that arises within us, and as we take responsibility for it in all the ways that I've covered in the first part of the talk, we come to see that the energy moves in two directions. On the one hand, when ungoverned, it lashes out and strikes out at the world, at people, at situations, even at objects. And on the other hand, unchecked, it manifests as self-hatred, self-aversion and a lack of inner forgiveness and inner love. The inner voices of anger and hatred can be so crippling, vicious, and relentless. And as we open to these voices, we come to know the heartbreaking truth that we treat ourselves in ways that we'd never treat anybody else. And many of us have known this for a long, long time. And so it is the tyranny of these voices of judgment and violence that must also be brought within the light of our awareness. Using the meditation practice as we do it here, we open to all the workings of anger, rage, frustration, and aversion turned inward against ourselves. Here too we draw on both the heart of compassion and the eye of wisdom as we grapple with the anger. There's a wonderful saying by the great Indian sage and master Nisargadatta. He says, love tells me that I'm everything, wisdom tells me that I'm nothing and between these two my life flow I feel that this really is how we open to anger with the love and with the wisdom we bring these both to the anger we bring into the brightness of awareness the high and impossible self-images we have for ourselves we come to know the grandiose ideas that there are of being perfect, abidingly kind, of never being angry, or ungenerous. We see too how we use these impossibly inhuman ideals as the yardstick against which we measure ourselves. And of course we fall short. And we open our broken hearts to the pain of all this cruelty We see, sadly, how we decimate ourselves when the reality of who we are is held up and compared to the heartbreaking models of who we think we should be or of who others think we should be. It's as if in each moment of the day we ask these questions. Who shall I be now? The one my mother wants me to be? The one my father hopes I'll be? the one my school teachers believed I could have been, the one my partner thinks I am, the one I want myself to be, the one my children expect me to be. And for so many of us, these barely perceptible but very debilitating questions of self-crucifixion go on all the time, removing us from a healthy sense of our true selves, We come to feel empty and barren and dry and there can often be great rage there too for all this self-denial and for all this pain and yet it is absolutely our birthright that our flowers be fully open and bright, completely free of all this inner violence and conflict that kept the buds so tightly closed and contracted for so long. I'd like to share with you my own process of opening to the voices of self-anger and share with you some of the lessons I've learned along the way. As I said in the beginning of the talk, anger is a factor of mind that's going to be around right, Till the end. It's one of the last emotions to fall away before we're all completely enlightened. So we're all students of anger, looking at it, working with it. I've been aware of the inner war for a very long time. I came to spiritual practice really, heavy under the weight of the relentless self hatred and division within myself. Over the years of meditation, I've observed the anger and the associated thoughts again, and again, and again, and again. (laughs) i felt the suffering of all this violence and division within myself so many times. A while ago, I was in a very difficult interpersonal situation. There was much pain and there was much disappointment was really heartbreaking and there was a lot of anger too and also a lack of reconciliation for quite some time. While there was nothing that I did or said that I regretted then or since, what was shattering and far more painful than the situation itself was the relentless barrage of self-criticism and judgment that the situation unleashed within me. Fueled by the strong emotions of the time, the onslaught of these inner voices did not abate for weeks, really for months actually. Little sleep and interpersonal wrangling and difficult decisions fueled the fire. This was a real hell realm. And no one was doing it to me. The self-hatred and inner judging was fiery and potent. I'd never really seen it this vividly and clearly before. Admittedly, there were dimensions of the situation that were touching very deep places within me, but I would no idea it was that strong. It was obvious that this was the painful reality of the inner wiring I've lived with all these years. And I tried to bargain with these tormenting thoughts. I tried affirmations. I reminded myself that all that I'd said and done in the situation was neither wrong nor inappropriate, but it was no good. They just poured on through me. I came to see that just as emotions are not rational, Neither are the thoughts that arise out of emotions always that rational either And I took this into this last two months of sitting In the beginning weeks of the retreat the full extent of the conflict revealed itself I couldn't believe the magnitude and the scope of the inner struggle Felt a mixture of sadness, disgust and horror. It was like Self-Hatred 101 sitting on my pillow. (laughs) It's terrible. I decided to give the thoughts that were coming on relentlessly a special label when they came. I called them The Voice. And I pitched it really deep and low. The Voice. (laughs) A label is very useful. When dealing with recurring thoughts, you may want to experiment with it in the practice. So like if planning is happening, or fantasizing is happening, or plotting is happening, just calling it plotting, plotting, fantasizing, fantasizing, just gives you an insight on, of the tape loop quality of recurring thoughts. And as you begin to see how repetitious they are, we begin to understand them. And that's really the beginning of making those difficult thoughts workable. So it was me and the voice on my pillow. I began to see how this voice featured in every aspect of my day. The voice was critical if I ate too much or if I ate too little. The voice had something to say if I meditated too much or not at all or too little. If I walked too much, or too little, or not at all, there was a judgment. It was incredible. I began to see that I couldn't win. It was just there criticizing all the time. I felt really bereft as the truth of it revealed itself, but also relieved that I was seeing it all so clearly. And this is really the first stage in opening and healing, the stage of recognition. It's vital and it's so important. And it's a tough one. If we choose in whatever way to candidly open to the truth of ourselves, it can be immensely difficult. It takes strength and it takes courage. We cannot heal what is not first been recognized. Self-knowledge is bad news, so often. This is a time requiring great care and tenderness and skill. While it may very well feel that our noses are being rubbed in self-understanding that are neither pleasant nor desirable, we need to be very careful that we do not use this difficult information as a further weapon against ourselves. This is a wonderful piece written by Hindu Swami Kripal Vananji. He says, Break your heart no longer. Each time you judge yourself, you break your heart. You stop feeding on the love that is the wellspring of your vitality. But now the time has come your time, to love, to celebrate, and to see the goodness that you are. There is no evil, no wrong in you or in any other. There is only the thought of it, and the thought has no substance. You are dear, divine, and very, very pure. Let no one, no thing, no idea, or ideal obstruct you. If one comes, even in the name of truth, forgive the thought for its unknowing. Do not fight it, just let go and breathe into the goodness that you are. The loving-kindness meditation, which I mentioned, will do a long-guided loving-kindness meditation at the end of the year here, is a powerful practice at times like this. I began alternating the loving-kindness meditation. It's also called the metta meditation. I began alternating the metta meditation with the insight meditation that we do here. Sometimes it's useful to do metta one sitting and vipassana one sitting, insight meditation one sitting or divide a single sitting, half one, half the other. Doing the loving-kindness meditation while eating, while walking, while washing, I found also very helpful in softening the inner turmoil. It seemed as though each phrase of the loving-kindness meditation contradicted the voice and softened the voice and gave it a feeling and gave me a feeling of warm protection and love. Perhaps you'd like to close your eyes just for a moment, and I'll repeat the phrases that I use when I do the loving-kindness practice. May I have ease of living. May I be safe from inner danger and outer danger. May love fill and heal body and being. May the peace of truth rest in my mind always. May I be happy. May I be free from suffering. May I have ease of living. May I be safe from inner and outer danger. May love fill and heal my body and being. May the peace of truth rest in my mind always. May I be happy and free from suffering. And you may wish when doing the metta meditation, create your own phrases, ones that have meaning for you. And when the feeling of loving-kindness rises and pervades your body and mind, be aware of it. Come to know and recognize the loving-kindness. It's a great friend. And so when you do it here, elsewhere, see also that sometimes the feeling is there in your heart and sometimes it's not there. And that's okay too. We need to open to those times when our hearts are closed. Keeping one's heart open in the hell of its closing is a further part of the practice. If the heart feels dry and brittle, continue the phrases, directing them at someone you love, at a friend perhaps or a benefactor. Sometimes it's easier to extend love to other people than it is to direct it towards ourselves. This is sad. But it's so true. The Buddha said in, I feel, one of his most beautiful sayings, he said, if we looked all over the world, we'd not find anyone more deserving of our love and tenderness and compassion than ourselves. For me, this whole scenario involved immense physical pain also. At times it felt as though every muscle in my body was screaming and tightening and every nerve was on fire. At these times I do the compassion meditation, again in this case repeating one single phrase, I care about this pain. Touching the area of pain with tenderness, acceptance and compassion, I care about my pain." Here again in the compassion practice, if you choose to use it, you may wish to create your own phrases that have special meaning. The classical phrase for compassion meditation is, may I be free from suffering. But really what works for you is most important. At this time, I remembered often The words of Nisargadatta, who I mentioned earlier, I've shared these with you several times over the last year. I'd like to read this again to you. He says, all you need is already inside of you. Only you must approach yourself with reverence and with love. Self-hatred and self-distrust are grievous errors. Your constant flight from pain and search for pleasure is a sign of love you bear yourself. All I plead with you is this. Make love of yourself perfect. Deny yourself nothing. Give yourself infinity and eternity and discover that you do not need them. You are beyond. So this is the first stage. Recognition with mindfulness, with compassion. For me, slowly the situation began to change. Whereas at first I felt browbeaten and immensely humbled as I realized that most of my life had been lived under the weight of all these counter-voices. With time, a sweet calm set in. And I began to move more and more out of the content into the deeper process of what was happening. Thoughts are like these trains in the mind, perhaps you've noticed. Sometimes we catch them long after they began their journey. Other times it's possible to see them soon after they begin. It really doesn't matter which. The willingness, as I said in the meditation instructions, to begin again and again is really what is most important and where the real power of the practice is. Using mental notes with thoughts, as I suggested, is invaluable at times when the thoughts are very charged and engaging. It can give precision and a sense of groundedness. So life those weeks was in, out, voice, voice, in, out, in, thinking, thinking, out, voice, voice, anger, anger, in disappointment, disappointment, voice, voice, and so it's just on and on and on. But I came to see that having a sense of humor is vital. It's difficult work, and keeping it as light as possible is very helpful. For many people there is a lot of fighting and aversion towards the thoughts. I know that happens with none of you here, but perhaps you know (laughs) others that do it. This aversion is just non-acceptance of the thoughts, and it exacerbates the situation, creates further tension and complexity and contraction. And if there is aversion to the thoughts, we need to open to the aversion also. What is also important is opening to the emotions which often condition the thoughts. You can be sure that if there is a succession of angry thoughts or revengeful thoughts, that underneath anger is there to be open to, to be accepted, to be felt and known. I spoke about this a lot in the first talk. For me, as the voice, and the anger became more and more okay. Things got lighter and joyful and even playful. I was seeing the voice everywhere, but the reaction was minimal or even non-existent. Out walking in the woods, instead of noting sometimes, when the voice came up, I used to snub my nose at it like this. I used to be a little careful that no one was watching me. (laughs) But it was great. It felt like I was playing with this thing that had hurt me so much. I had a really vivid dream one night. My dreams were great. On retreat, those of you that done it, dreams are fantastic. They can really have a lot of power. And I had a dream that I was with the man that abused me when I was an infant. And in the dream, I really realized and knew that in the future, I could coexist together with this person without any trouble. There was a real knowing there. There was awareness in the dream. He opened his mouth to speak to me, and his voice was uncannily deep and gruff. I got such a fright I woke up. but it really was a time of, of exhilaration and enthusiasm to look to understand, to know more, and more, and more. This is the second stage, the stage of acceptance. The first one was recognition, and then there is acceptance. We must first recognize the cause of the suffering that is there. We must then come to accept, okay? Here we are. What you have to do is you have mm-hmm. to just, no. You just open it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing to push. Mm-hmm. And there's no rush. Mm-hmm. Other side. Mm-hmm. <gasps> no. mm-hmm. Thank you. Yay, Cheryl. So we first come to recognize the cause of the suffering. We then come to accept the causes before really genuine healing is possible. And these are processes, as I've said, calling for patience and courage and commitment. Accepting self-anger and inner conflict and hatred and the thoughts that go along with them. And the pain is not easy. Why is it? so difficult to accept these thoughts. Well, first of all, our identification with thoughts is one of the primary ways in which we create a sense of ourselves. And this has been going on for a long time. It's really a deeply conditioned pattern. We see the thoughts as me and mine. And if the thoughts are furthermore charged with high emotion and pain, It's not easy to see them as empty and changing, but it is certainly possible. In the moment of awareness of the thought, perhaps you've noticed the thought you see just falls away. The moment we see it, it's over. We return to the breath. Furthermore, it's very easy to have an idea, sometimes even subtle, that thinking is wrong and we fight the thoughts. We feel that the end of thoughts somehow is the goal of the meditation practice. This is really frustrating and dangerous, because thoughts are a natural part of being human. They will, I understand, always be around. And the challenge is rather to come to know the true nature of thoughts rather than trying to obliterate them. And this endeavor is the third stage, the stage of process. So there's recognition, acceptance, and in the third stage we move into process. For me, I began to feel that I'd weathered a hurricane. And in the deepening calm and equanimity, the awareness of the process of thoughts at times was very subtle, Often mindfulness was there at the impulse to self-criticize, even before the object of criticism had been identified. It's really amazing. And yet seeing thoughts as no more personal than the clouds passing across an open sky, or the sound of the rain on the ground, or the calling of a bird outside, seeing thoughts as utterly empty, as yet another empty phenomena, rolling on along with sounds, sights, sensations in the body and so forth, brings great joy and a real sense of freedom to the meditation practice. Thoughts become less sticky. They're no longer a source of difficulty. There's no longer any struggle. And we glimpse the possibility of letting go, fundamentally, the tyranny of thoughts turned inward against ourselves in such self-destructive and familiar ways. In a very powerful and succinct teaching on the nature of reality, the Buddha said, In the seeing, there is just what is seen. In the hearing, there is just what is heard. In the thinking, there is just what is thought, and so with tasting, so with emotions. That's it. In any moment, what is seen, what is thought, what is tasted, what is heard. On the other hand, in times of subtle practice, there can be a further awareness of the process of knowing or consciousness that happens simultaneously with the arising of what is seen, thought, tasted, what the emotions are. So it's just the knowing of the and the object arising and passing away, moment to moment. That's all there is. There's no Gavin, there's no Stephen, there's no Rupert, there's no Karen. Just the object and the knowing of it. It's a time of great joy and contentment and peace along with the difficulty of seeing everything changing so rapidly and so relentlessly. Everything is a reminder that everything is changing so fast. And of course, from this perspective, the voice became just another empty phenomena. The voice, in the voicing, there is just what is voiced, utterly empty. What are the ramifications of opening deeply to the inner judging and self-hatred and condemnation? Well, firstly, I suspect the voices will probably remain around for some time. But as we give them less power, by disidentifying with them, they must gradually lay themselves to rest. They become inert and no bother. When they arise, just say, thank you for sharing, and goodbye. (laughs) And as the inner conflict dows down, there is also more space for healthy individuation to happen. That process where we evolve at last fully into the truth of who we are. Our flower opens into fullness and into loveliness. Our eyes that have been downcast with self-embarrassment and shame and self-denial can at last be lifted as the forces of loving-kindness and compassion, forgiveness and tenderness become the full context in which we live our lives and the way in which we care for ourselves. For we are then participating in the healing which we took birth for, that we might know in our lives the peace that passeth all understanding. Thank you. May we sit together for a moment, please, and then I'm going to read you, read a poem by E.E. E. Cummings. Mm-hmm. I thank you, God, for most this amazing day, for the leaping greenly spirits of trees, and the blue true dream of sky, and for everything which is natural, which is infinite, which is yes. I who have died am alive again today. <laughs> And this is the sun's birthday. This is the birthday of life and of love and swings, and of the gay great happening, illimitably, earth. Now the ears of my ears awake, and now the eyes of my eyes are open.